Wow. My guest today on Your Story with Melinda was unbelievable, incredible Melba Patillo Beals. You have probably seen her because she is the recipient of America's highest honor, the Congressional Gold Medal, for her role as a 15-year-old in the integration of Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas in 1957. I've seen the images of her walking into the school as they're trying to integrate the school and being spit on by an angry mob. This is her story today about racism, overcoming, courage, pioneering, and her faith in God that changed everything about how she sees the world today. You won't want to miss the show. Patillo Beals, thank you so much for being with me today on the show. My blessing, my pleasure. Let's start right from the beginning. I mean, as a, a young person um, growing up in the American school in Singapore and in the Philippines, I remember seeing the image of you back in 1957 when you were just 14, 15 years old, an African-American girl living in Little Rock, Arkansas, and going through... Um, walking up to Central High School in Little Rock. Uh, that image, Melba, is seared in my, my head and for a lot of us. Um, let's talk about that, because what was it like for you living in 1957 as an African-American girl? Give, us, give me a sense of it, because I'd love to know. It was kind of a summary. I was there for a reason, and people always ask, why did you have the nerve and the gall? Why did you want to do that? And I'll give you a couple of examples why. When I was three years of age, I already knew that I was in a place I was unwelcome because my parents at home would be all sweet-faced and nice and grown up and wide shoulders and proud. We'd go up the block to the grocery store and they would become humble idiots. These articulate, educated people would be bowing, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, no, sir. And if we met a white person on the way to the store, and we'd have to step off the side into the mud. They wouldn't have to, but we did. And the thing was, they'd bow their heads. Don't look at them in the face, ever. Don't meet a white person's eyes. These were a, a part of the rules, the Jim Crow rules. Inside the store, I was a little kid. I wanted to get back home to my teddies and toys. And um, if we were standing in line, for example, with groceries to check out, and a white lady came in and she just you know, arbitrarily wanted to leave, she just stepped in front of us. We didn't count. We weren't there. We were invisible. And people called us nigger at the drop of a hat, pushed us out of the way, no riding on the front of the bus, no drinking out of water fountains except if they were marked colored. And always in the department stores, if you had to go potty or to the bathroom, you had to go down the hall, down the stairs. You know, by the time I was five, I'd already gone into a white lady's bathroom, got my grandmother and me arrested. And we were held in this room for something like eight to 10 hours being questioned. So already I was kind of like a veteran, you know, by the time I'm 14 years of age, I'm very angry because in fact, when I was five, I said to my mom, where did I come from? She said, the stork. Cool. I went outdoors, parked my wagon and waited out there in the sun. Cause I thought if the stork delivered me, right, I'm going to get a hitch a ride out of here with the stork, the wow. same stork, because he's got to come back to deliver everybody else, right? Yeah. So by the time I'm 14 and I'm walking to, the, to that school, I'm determined. 
And my parents, my mother and I arrived that first day and we uh, walked up behind a mob of people who were on tippy toe looking across the street to the front of Central High School. Now imagine that Central High School is eight square blocks in diameter. Therefore, across the front, there are two blocks. And standing in front of this school were the Arkansas State Troopers Mm -hmm. that the governor had dispatched to keep us away. And then there was the 10th one of us, Elizabeth Eckford, who was trying to penetrate that line. The more she tried, the more they closed ranks. So she backed up and she would try to go to another entryway. There are many entryways within that two block area. Every time she tried, they closed rank. And so ultimately behind her were this group of people spitting on her and calling her name. And Life Magazine, all the big magazines print a picture of all these white faces behind her head, walking with her, screeching at her. They spat on her dress to the extent that when we got home, we could wring it out like water. And the only thing that saved her was this this white couple sat down on either side of her and protected her as she waited for her bus home. Now, Melvin, did you, now, did you, were you chosen or did you volunteer to be one of the nine? Both. Both? Okay. Uh, they, the school system came out and decided that they were going to do the least as they need to do to comply with the 54 Brown decision, separate is not equal. So they picked their biggest high school, some 1,900 people, and what they did was to look through the uh, African-American high schools to see who made straight A's, blah, 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 okay. who had been well behaved. And then, so the teacher came through one day and said, who lives in the district of Central High School and who wants mm-hmm. to go? Well, I raised my hand. And she said, well, I'm going to give you this piece of paper, take it home to your mother. And I thought I shouldn't inconvenience mom with this dilemma. Don't, I didn't have her sign it. I signed her name to it and turned it down. <laughs> Did you, Melba, have any sense at that point what it would be like? I mean, you, you already said that as a young girl, you, you, you had witnessed it, but did you have any idea what it would be well, like I, going? I, I wrote this book recently as well called March Forward Girl, in which I tell you what life was like then because everybody wants to know what could compel you to want to go. Mm-hmm. And I wanted out. I thought if I go to this school, which ranks 10th in the nation, I'm going to be able to use that as a ticket to get out of Little Rock. Whatever I have to do to get out of Little Rock, I want to do it. I also wanted to have better education because not that our teachers, our our African-American teachers were wonderful people, but as far as equipment is concerned, every fall we got like three-legged tables. We got, you know, computers and typewriters with keys missing. Uh, We got the hand-me-down dirty trash from the white school. And so I wanted to get fresh supplies and I wanted to go to this huge, beautiful school. I mean, our school was one story built on a Florida plan that if I wanted to go from one room to the other, I had to go outdoors and down the block. Wow. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and their school was this huge castle like place. So, you know, I wanted what they had. Let's get real here. Yeah. I want that school. And so my determination was to go. And they chose out of the first sifting 116 and second, those people backed out. A lot of those people just did not want to go. So secondary to that, they chose another 16. And then out of those 16, nine of us decided we were definitely going to go. Wow. At 14, I mean, to me, Melba, it's 
it's courage, but yes, motivated by like, I want to get out of here and I want the same opportunity as other people. So you walk through the crowd that the world has seen, that it's been photographed, that- That's you, right. And so how are you feeling? who knows what a mob is? Say the word mob. Mob. To a <laughs> I don't know mob. Right. I don't know mob at that age. I don't know what you're talking about. What mm -hmm. mob, where, what right. are they going to yeah. do? And so the fact that they're assembled across the street from this school as we approach the rear, we think it's, it sounded like you're at a ball game or like a football game or a rodeo or something. And we tiptoe to look, see across the street what they're looking at. They're looking at Elizabeth. So the first thing we think of, well, we got to go across the street and get her. That, that can't oh. be. We have to go re rescue her. Yeah. And then this guy uh, with coveralls on and a rope around his shoulder says, hey, we don't have to go across the street. We've got some nigger right here to hang. And with that, we realize that we have walked into a hornet's nest ourselves. My mother's dressed in heels, a suit she's carrying a valise because she's on her way to school to teach. Uh, and so we started running as fast as we could. And at one point, um, the men behind us were saying what they're going to do to us. My mother was very petite and really very beautiful. She walked into a room. You wouldn't know if she was Italian, Hawaiian, or what was she, right? Yeah. She's very, very beautiful, long hair and copper complexion and a cute smile. And and so these men were saying verbally what sexual things they were going to do to my mother wow. and before they hanged us. And they were bragging and giggling and talking. And um, we started running really fast. And this was the first time that I realized that what my grandmother had said about God, all along, you know, as a teenager, you go to church, you hear these words. I went to church three, four nights a week plus Sunday. Mm -hmm. So you hear these words. And what, what do you think about these words? Uh, forgive me for the telephone here. I'm sort of by myself. But what do you think about these words, you know? And what you think is that, okay, um, I hear them, but I don't understand them quite. Yeah. And she had said, God is as close to your skin. If you really need him, call him. He's there. And so here I am. These policemen aren't going to come help us. The troops aren't going to help us. And we're running for our life. And I started screaming, the Lord is my shepherd. Mm. And I shall not want. Yeah. And I screamed the Lord's prayer. I thought the louder I scream, <laughs> the faster he's going to hear me. And I thought, how is he going to get me out of this? There seems to be no way to get out of this. And then I remember grandmother said, if you don't doubt God, if you're falling off the edge of a mountain, notice the scenery. Hmm. But you're going to be okay. And so sure enough, my mother and I come to a point in this unconcreted sidewalk where there's a bush across it. We notice it. We run around each end of it. But the men behind us do not notice it. And all of their glee and angst to catch us, they start to tumble over it like a domino set. And that is a few seconds in which we got to the car and my mother had been teaching me to drive in the, in the parking lot of Kroger's. And so I got in that car, put my key in and started to drive, baby. Wow. I backed up faster than I had ever driven forward. Now after and that, I, yeah. I started, these men are banging on the windshield and calling us names and throwing rocks oh. at us. But we got away very fast and got home. And I thought to myself on the way home, I, I got to go look up in the dictionary integration. That was your first thing. That was the first thing you. Right. Because okay. um, that's a bigger word. Yeah. That but I also told, told grandma, grandma, you're right. You're right. God is right here. Yeah. She said, so see, I told you. 
So now how long were you in the high school? So how long were you in at Central High School? Did you did you do a year or two? Or year, a year? to 58. Okay. And but then, with the help of the 101st Airborne Division, right. we didn't get in. We made two more attempts to go in. And we did not go in and stay in for a day until uh, President Eisenhower sent right. the 101st soldiers armed to the teeth and ready to roll, a thousand of them, he said. Incredible. Incredible. Did you so ever- then I had three bodyguards. You know, I had primary, tertiary, secondary, and tertiary. So one bodyguard directly with me, behind me, two in the distance and three farther away than that. And their sole job all day long for about the first month or so was to guard just me. And each of the nine students had multiple sets of guards that would come on duty, stay on duty for like three or four hours, then go away and come back. What was that like for you when you're doing school? I, I can't imagine that, having bodyguards around you. Well, it was in some ways very uh, upsetting, but also very comforting. Yeah. Uh, I thought, what trouble must I be in that I need these guys? Mm-hmm. A, B, oh my goodness, God does love me, like Grandma says, because he sent them. Yeah. And all the news reporters would say, uh, this is the first time in history the president has sent the uh, army, the U.S. Army, to guard uh, African-American children or any children. Yeah. It's a unique setup. And so I was quite, quite, you know, taken aback. We used to walk up to them and try to see could we get them to not, you know, stand so still and salute and all that. And yeah. we used to tease them. They were wonderful men who in the end, although they dated some of those white seniors, uh, and they were very young. Some of them were almost as young as we were. Yeah. Uh, my personal bodyguard uh, was inevitably saved my eyesight, for example, when they squirted uh, uh, a substance in my eye that um, wow. we know now is part acid and whatnot because the doctor tested it. Uh, he was the one who took my ponytail and slammed me uh, to the water fountain and ran the water, just kept running it for like 10 minutes wow. and saved my eyesight. Now, saved the quality of my sight, if not my sight. To this day, I have floaters from that, from that. experience. Now, Melba, you've experienced all these things, and but you're still a teenager. You're still 15. What, With all of this going around you, what were some of the dreams you had for your life? I mean, it's you have a very unique um, high school experience, but you're still a young girl. What were some of the dreams that you wanted? You know, I want my crinoline slip to be good, like, and I wanted to go to a, a prom. I wanted to dance. Uh, when we first saw that big crowd there, I thought, boy, Johnny Mathis was there. Uh, I wanted to get into an Elvis concert, but they wouldn't let black people get in. Wow. And he made that public statement that the only thing black people could do for him was to shine his shoes. So I was done with that. Yeah. Uh, but I adored Elvis's voice and his look until that moment. Uh, I wanted to get in one of those concerts. I wanted to be free to go to the movies. Wow. I wanted to get in the movies. I wanted to go to a nice restaurant. And uh, Thurgood Marshall came down. That was before he became a justice because he was spearheading this whole thing. And he took us to lunch one day at this tacky, tacky restaurant. And he said to me, Melba, it's going to be okay. Going to be okay. 
very soon one day, you'll be able to go to any restaurant you want in Arkansas, I promise you. And he was a wonderful, wonderful man who demonstrated what it meant to be freedom because no matter what people did to him or said to him, he walked tall, strong. He was a beautiful, beautiful man that demonstrated what our parents were trying to tell us, which is we are free inherently. We are free from the moment we're born. Don't wait for somebody to stamp you free. Don't wait for somebody to hand you your equality. It's yours to claim. Amazing. You also had a talk with Dr. Martin King Jr. Um, at an event. When that was incredible. He came down twice to check on us. Really? And the first time he came down was we were in the rumpus room of the president of the NAACP in her basement. She had this mm-hmm. beautiful room. And... Um, we entered and took seats and then he came in. And what you know from the beginning is you feel the presence of God. You feel a stillness. You feel a power. You feel a so confident. You just know mm-hmm. that this man is different than you are. And he first, of course, started with prayer. And then he looked at each of us and he talked really slow. And I talked really fast <laughs> like I do now. And, uh, I kept, in the beginning, finishing his sentences. And he never said anything to me. He just looked over at me like, are you out of your mind, girl? You know, <laughs> what's your problem? And so uh, finally became my time to talk. I was Miss Whiny Pot. I don't want to do this. I want to go home. I want the prom. They're hitting me. They're putting us, you know, I ran the list to him. Mm-hmm. And um, he said, he waited for a moment. And let me shut up. And then he said, Melba, you're not doing this for yourself. Don't be selfish. You're doing this for generations yet unborn. Wow. That just gave me chills, Melba. Wow. Wow. I, 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 that would be a sentence that would live with me uh, for the rest of my life to this day. What are you doing? You're not doing it for yourself, Melba. You're doing it for generations yet unborn. So uh, I thought afterwards, over and over and over and over, I had that sentence. And I thought, oh, listen here, I want to go to the prom, never mind generations yet unborn. But the truth of it was that sentence laid a foundation and gave me justification. Why are you here today, Mama? For generations yet unborn. Beautiful. Man, imagine, I mean, that over you, that is big. And I want to talk about that as as I see sort of that statement sort of coming to fruition in your life later on. Um, During this time, part of your story, Melba, is that you were placed with a white family in California, the McCabe's, um, because of the KKK death threats that you you had experienced. How did that come about? What was that experience like for you? Well, um, I was out of school totally for a year because the governor closed yes. all the schools, right? Yes. yes. So then, uh, and that was the time when my beloved grandmother, who had been my my life, my soul, uh, passed away. And so I had a tremendous adjustment to make. Mm-hmm. Because I was home every day by myself, my mother and my brother went to school. So um, about April and May, I had relatives who were passing for white. You know, all black families are mixed. Yeah. And so I had blonde hair, blue-eyed, red-haired, blue-eyed, black relatives who were married to white women uh, in the Klan themselves. And so there were these these placards all over the city of Little Rock that said, for these nine, 10,000 dead, 5,000 alive. 
okay? So uh, finally, uh, one of my relatives called my mother and said, look, they're not kidding. We had a meeting the other night and some of our folk are coming down to try to make that $10,000. Because you have to remember in 1958, $10,000 was a house, a car, and a boat. Wow. It was everything you ever wanted, okay? Mm -hmm. So the issue here was, what do you do with the nine of us? And what they elected to do with us was to get us out of there. And so they did. They, um, each of us went to a family. Now, Ernie Green graduated in May of 1958, but we were all sent out of the city. Mm -hmm. And um, I uh, said, you, they said, okay, so you're gonna go to an NAACP family, the Santa Rosa NAACP, wants you to come there and you'll live with the family there. Well, what is NAACP? National Association of the Advancement of Colored People. They had spearheaded that whole Little Rock thing. I thought, okay, I'm gonna live with this wealthy or well-off black family. I'll have Ebony Magazine every month. I'll have uh, a telephone of my own. There was no cell phones then, but there were telephones in the house. This is gonna be fab. Well. I got off the plane in San Francisco. I don't know anybody. The night before, you know, when my parents had heard this note about get me out of there, they scrambled all night to make new dresses and yeah. been up all night and they slammed me on a plane. So I arrived and I'm standing in the middle of the airport, not knowing who's going to come. I'm waiting for this lovely black family to come walking towards me and greet me. And instead, uh, a group of about 11 or 12, something like that, white folks were walking my way. So I sort of like moved to the left and said, oh my goodness, you know, who's behind me? I'm, I'm looking behind me to see, you know, there must be somebody they're greeting there. Yeah. No, 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 no. They rushed up to me, they <laughs> hugged me. White people don't hug black people. I don't know these people. I'm thinking this has got to be the Klan. They're going to take me away and kill me. You know, this is it. And they said, oh, you know, we just love you and blah, blah, blah. And here's a Bible and come with us. Let's get you. And they said, you know, you go get the luggage. And I'm thinking to myself, this can't be. I'm yeah, wrong address, wrong city. Mm -hmm. I, I said, I, I'm Melba Beals, you know, and I'm I'm black. You know, I'm a Negro, a Negro. And they said, oh, we love you. Welcome, dear. And so they crammed me into a van and they drove me first to the city of Santa Rosa, where I stayed overnight with a family there. I thought I'm going to die. I, I mean, the word fear was oh. similar, akin to the fear I had had at, inside Central High School. Wow. Like, I am going to die here tonight in this room. And I remember there was a radio station here in San Francisco called KSFO. And it did this wonderful, the sound of the city thing. And I'll never forget it because it was the only thing that was familiar to me because it was they, a choir sang this. And they sang it a cappella like my choir had sung at church and home. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, nothing was familiar to me, including the the stuff they served that night for dinner. I didn't recognize one part of it. And so I thought, I just, you know, what's gonna happen to me? Yeah. Well, so happens that woman's neighbor, they objected to me being there. So the okay. next day, about three days, uh, she was busy calling around seeing who would take me and which I felt like I was, you know, on auction sale. Here I am again, I don't fit, nobody wants me. And so one day 
they drove up a van again, packed my stuff, and they said, okay, you're going to be with the McCabe family. So I get to the McCabe house, and this tiny little woman with brown bangs greets me uh, in this sort of rock-filled garage, and we're in the country. This is like a small little ranch kind of thing going on. And I get out of the car, and they take me in the house, and she's just lovely. Hmm. She takes me to this room and says, sweetheart, you're going to be here. Now let's put your things down. And she, she talks to me as though she's known me forever. Her name is Carol McCabe. And indeed, she would become my mom. I have two moms, black and white. And uh, she would become someone that even to talk about her, I get tears and it fills my heart because she was the kindest person I have ever met. She and my grandmother were a match for kindness mm. and sweetness. And I thought that evening when the dad came home, I thought, well, you know, wait till he gets here. He'll he'll want to put me out. No. He came in the door and said, oh, I see you've arrived. Well, welcome, my dear. And the dad was head of San Francisco State University, Sonoma Branch. And during my period there, I would watch him and his colleagues uh, drink white wine and smoke cigars. And they would eventually... Uh, found or find, you know, put together mm-hmm. the Sonoma State University, which still exists today. Yeah. So the one example here is that love answers questions. Love is the solution. Yes. Whenever people say to me, I bet you hate all white people, I have to say, no, my mom and dad, the ones who bridged me to college, are very white. Beautiful. You know, you, you've, you've gotten this opportunity, and, and Melba, it sounds like you have had um, experiences and connection with God through your grandma and, and things. And, and, you know, your life keeps going. I mean, you are such a tremendous, powerful woman because I look at sort of the rest of your life and I see, you know, how did you have the courage because you, you got married and then you got divorced and you're a single mom raising your daughter, Kelly. Right. Um, and then you become the first female and only African-American on-air news reporter in San Francisco. And then right. you go on to adopt two three-year-old boys at 50 years old. That's right. One of those boys <laughs> is named Evan. And Evan finished up my makeup and put this Skype together. Okay. Thank you, Evan. But I, I, I look at that and through all the things that you experienced in your, in your childhood, and then you're going through all of these things, Melba, how did you do it? How did you, how are you pioneering? How did you get through to be a single mom? What, what was it that They're got all you through? Blessings. Like, look what Evan turned out to be. Evan's my big, big blessing. Uh, and so look what happened is that in the beginning, you think it's trouble, but it's not. And what I have learned most of all that people might benefit from hearing is Some people wait and they think they're going to be these angels on high and there's tutelage going on if you get a blessing, but not at all. Blessings are small, everyday gifts, rescues from God. And I've been rescued so many times that I just can't count them. And what I've learned is God will help you, but he expects certain things from you. He expects me to listen to people to be available, like once I wanted my girlfriend's son, excuse me, to come and help me move. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I really needed him because I didn't have any money, blah, blah, blah. Well, he came over and he was filling boxes and helping me. And while he was there, he started to ask me what I thought of drugs and that kind of thing. 
And I could talk to him about it. I could tell him that behavior is not acceptable cause. And you have to look at the long term. If it's fun tonight for you, what will it do to you tomorrow? Yeah. How will it, it hamper you from living the life you want to live? And so I thought to myself at the end of that, see, God said he could come and help you, Mama, but in exchange, things are expected of me. So that's it. I'm 76. And what I've learned is that blessings come to me every single moment of every day. That's the first thing. Yeah. Just recognize them. And sometimes we don't, you know, sometimes we want blessings to come in the precise form. We want the we Volkswagen. Think, yeah. Please have the new Volkswagen. <laughs> yeah. And when God drives up in the Rolls Royce, we say, now that's not the color, nor the size I want. I wanted the Volkswagen. But the solutions to your problems, just like when I was at Central High, I wanted the police to come march or the soldiers to march in and rescue us. And it wasn't that at all. It was a bush across the road yeah. that the man fell upon. And so what I've learned is don't be naughty. The solutions and the blessings come in the way God wants them to come, not in the way that you may dream they come, mm -hmm. but they come. Yeah. And they're regular and they're constant. Beautiful. Melba, your encouragement in, in an atmosphere in the United States and in Canada where we're seeing a lot of you know, the sense of, I mean, not racism has been happening, but just it seems like more in the news and, and there's fear and there's rioting. What are your thoughts about racism today? How can we as, as people of faith and the church, you know, help with this dissension and, and, and tension and turmoil that we're seeing today? Well, with the advent of this administration, of course, following an African-American president where I felt safe, protected, that I could talk. See, I, I, what you need, first of all, is voice, right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't that uh, Obama brought an end to racism and the dangers we face as black people. It was that I knew I had a voice, yeah. someone in charge who heard me. Now it's very difficult because the people who would destroy us and get rid of us believe they have a voice. Unfortunately, in California, we recently had a young black man just killed in the alleyway, and the kids were wearing Trump. You know, we have permission to do this. And so one of the things we have to see now is that God never does anything to us without a reason. This is a period for learning. This is a lesson, a huge, huge, huge lesson. Mm -hmm. We need to pay attention. Someone, I wrote a speech for someone a, a, a while back. I write speeches sometimes. And the title of that speech was, Who Let the Dogs Out? Well, we let the dogs out. We let hatred and racism and violence out again, out of the bag, because we were not voting. We were home shining our Lexi and washing our Jimmy Choo's. We, were, we weren't paying attention. We didn't read upon the election and who to elect and what was going on. We just did it. And so now for those who wanted this kind of uh, situation and those who didn't, it's lesson time. And I keep in mind in the beginning, I was so upset, but then I keep in mind that every single thing that happened to us has to be in some ways the will of God. How will I respond to it? Mm -hmm. And what will I do with it is the only question that remains. Wow. See it as a blessing. Yeah. I see it as a wake up call to us. Yeah. We better wake up, kids. Because a lot of people say now the rights of minorities are rolling backwards. 
it will not work because I don't know one Asian, one Latino, or one black that's going back to where we were. I have met one that's willing to roll back. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. They say, the leaders say, no, we're not going anywhere. Yeah. We'll be here for a long time. And so don't look at this as an opportunity to close your eyes and sit tight and roll backwards. We're not doing that. Yeah. Instead, it's an opportunity to energize. Let's energize. I love that. And then God, yeah. yeah. Melba, you have had some very significant moments in your life. What would you say is the greatest? You've been on Oprah. You've had uh, been able to hear and talk with um, Dr. Martin King Jr. You have... Um, I mean, you have books sold in the in the millions or the million copies of your books sold. You have been on uh, national television. And again, the first female and only African-American on-air news report in San Francisco. I mean, there are so many accolades of you. What would you say is one of your greatest accomplishments to date? My boys and my daughter. Yeah. My daughter is a psychologist. And my boys who came to me could both fit on my lap are now much taller than I am and much stronger than I am. Yeah. And so my babies, my six foot tall sons who are gorgeous and have graduated from college, uh, my daughter. And so my children, when we can all get dressed and go to church on Sunday, if we're together, uh, when we're all sitting at the dinner table with that pre uh, meal prayer, uh, my babies. Yeah. And my life that God has gifted me with. I just saw him standing over me. He was fixing the television. And the first thing I said was, could I, could, may I hug you? Because I look at him and I think how tall and strong he is when he was just a little doll when he came. And I thought, what a miracle you are, son. Uh, you know, you can do my makeup, you can talk to me. So uh, they're huge blessings. And my babies are my biggest uh, experience. Yeah. To with them and have them love me and spend time with them is the most incredible thing in my life. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you for your time with me. Um, Such an honor and privilege. I can't believe I'm actually talking with you via Skype when I saw your image when I was a little girl and have always been in awe of people like you who were pioneers. Um, And even in the midst of that, as as a young child, you still were able keep going in your life and be courageous and make a difference. It, you know, I, your story is the kind where when I speak to young people across Canada and, you know, they, people define themselves by their circumstance or the color of their skin, me being Filipino and, and people are making excuses to me. I'm like, it's, you know, it's just an excuse. Cause I've seen people like you and stories and heard stories of yours where it's like, yes, there was, hard times and people were, you know, you were spit on and things were said about you, but you still were able to overcome. And that just, your story is so encouraging uh, for young women like me. So just thank you so much. It's my blessing to be here and to help you spread the word. I certainly admire what you do. And I thank you for the privilege of being here this morning. Awesome. So what did you think of our story this week? Let me know in the comments below or by writing a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also find all our past episodes online at faithstrongtoday.com slash your story.